series of passages that inform our understanding of Christmas and what the season means for us as followers of Christ. It is entirely possible that we could celebrate the Christmas season while neglecting to give thorough consideration to what it is that we commemorate during this time of the year. I was almost 20 years uh, old before I came to faith in Jesus. We always celebrated Christmas, but I can never once prior to the weeks and months leading up to coming to faith in Christ remember a thorough explanation of the message of the gospel, which is in essence the, essence, the message of Christmas. I've experienced, and many of you have as well, in short-term mission efforts, being in other parts of the world, especially in Eastern Asia, Thailand and China, where Christmas is a really big deal, and yet there is no, little to no understanding of the message of the gospel. Time and culture and the trappings of the holiday have done an effective job of divorcing the celebration of Christmas from the substance of the Christmas message. Even more discouraging is the reality that often churches miss it. And I would just say to you this morning, the message of Christmas is the message of the church. That God has interrupted human history by the sending forth of His only Son to resolve our most pressing need, which is the problem of sin and its need for redress. Jesus has done that in His perfect righteousness. By His blood, He has reconciled an unrighteous people to a fiercely righteous God. There's 66 books in the Bible, but all are teaching the same lesson, the same story, the same message. What looms large over the narrative arc of the Bible is this great issue. It begins as far back as Genesis 3. Sin has entered the world. We live, we are born with condition of corruption. The curse of the garden weighs heavy on us. We are sinners by inheritance, and we are sinners by choice. What will the righteous God of heaven do in order to rectify this situation? How will a righteous God, without compromising his own integrity, draw near to himself a people marked by unrighteousness? With every chapter of the Bible, every verse, and every book, contribution is being made to the building of this tension and the development of this promise that one day, somehow, someway, God would interrupt human history and provide for this fundamental need we all have. Second Samuel 7, as much as any chapter in the Old Testament, as much as any passage in the Old Testament, contributes to the development of this promise, the development of our understanding of, of how it is and, and, and when it is that God would move in history to provide for this resolution. Second Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17 is our text. If you would, join me in standing as we read the Word of God together. The Bible says here, when the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. 
So Nathan told the king, go and do all that's on your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord said. Are you to build a house for me to live in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I've not lived in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever asked anyone among the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Now this is what you're to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a name for you like that of the greatest in the land. I will establish a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not afflict them as they've done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I removed him from your way. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Nathan spoke all these words in this entire vision to David. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There are a number of signals, even within the passage, that indicate for us the importance of the passage itself. In the Hebrew Bible, there is no first and second Samuel. There is just Samuel. We've divided it for the sake of access in our English translations. But there are indicators, even within Samuel as a book, that this is central. This is a focal point within the book of Samuel. There are signposts that indicate such in the literary structure of the book. Even more than that, this is the most substantial statement from God since he bound himself to Israel in a covenant through the ministry of Moses. 198 words in the Hebrew text. Again, the most substantial statement that God has authored for now hundreds of years. There are indications here that we are building upon the covenant promises of God previously forged in the Old Testament. David's proper way of referring to God in verses 1 through 17 is to refer to him as Adonai Lord. Adonai, Lord, again and again and again. The only time in all of Samuel that that terminology is used to describe God, and it's terminology that derives directly from Genesis chapter 15 when God makes a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a vast nation. Your descendants will be the source of blessing to people all over the world, as innumerable as the grains of sand on the seashore will be your descendants. I will be with you, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. By the time we come 
to the Exodus again and the covenant that God makes with Israel as a specially chosen nation. He binds himself to Israel in a covenant and provides for them laws and regulations. They are to be holy as he is holy in order to designate themselves as the elect, chosen people of God. The language of God's covenant commitment to Israel is expressed throughout these 17 verses again, in addition to the promises God had previously forged between himself and the people of Israel. Nathan's, or David Rather's concerns in our passage are noble. He looks around and he observes, I'm living in a house made of cedar, which is in an ancient Near Eastern setting, a house of luxury. I'm living in a fine home. I live with all of the comforts that this fine home affords me, and yet the Ark of the Covenant, that most forceful expression of the presence of God among us, is out there in a tent. I will agree with David. There is something a little off-putting about that. I might be a little discomforted by that if that were to be my experience. I have a fine home, and the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent of all things. And so David says to Nathan the prophet, I want to build the Lord a house. In effect, I want to build a temple in which God will abide in our midst. Nathan, having observed that David was a man after God's own heart, and having observed that God's favor rested on David, said, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Soon after, God would appear to Nathan the prophet, provide not just for the prophet, but also for David, correction. Verse 4 of chapter 17 says, That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, This is what the Lord says. Are you to build a house for me to live in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I've not lived in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever asked anyone among the tribes of Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? God would go on to say in verse 11, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. This may seem arbitrary, but David is learning a great gospel lesson. The message of the gospel and the unconditional way that God had bound himself to David and his dynasty was never about what we stand to do for God, but what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is not about you building me a house, David. This is about the house that I'll establish for you. The immediate fulfillment of the prophetic promise in 2 Samuel 7 is the birth of Solomon and his kingship. The Chronicles make this clear. That Solomon's reign, that Solomon's life and leadership is a direct result of the promises that God has made in what we now know as the Davidic Covenant, the 17 verses that we've just read together. But like a lot of prophetic promises, there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Contemporaries of David and Solomon would have rightly regarded Solomon's leadership as evidence of God's faithfulness to keep these promises. And if you study the Bible closely, you can almost sense there's an almost palpable optimism about the life and the leadership of Solomon, that he just might be the one 
returning to that great issue that looms large over the whole narrative arc of the Bible. When will one come that can reverse the curse of sin? Maybe Solomon will be that one. The tendency was to see these things in a temporal way anyway. Maybe Solomon will be the one who will liberate us forever from our enemies, who will continue to contribute to the building up of Israel as a great earthly nation. For the first time in Israel's history, she was the focal point of all things geopolitical. Rather than Israel sending and inquiring of neighboring nations and their actions, activities, and the decisions that they were making, for the first time in Israel's history, the nations had come to Israel, this small, fledgling nation at the crossroads of civilization. Egypt sent her dignitaries. Assyria sent her dignitaries. Israel was the focal point of all things civilized in the world. Financial prosperity was enjoyed in Solomon's day, such as was never enjoyed, nor has since been enjoyed in Israel as a nation. The boundaries of the nation were broader in the days of Solomon's reign than at any time before or after. Maybe Solomon will be the one, but he would fail, and his sons after him would fail. And if you know your Bible well, the story of the kings is the story of Davidic king after Davidic king failing again and again and again. As a matter of fact, at the end of Kings, the people of God are carried off into exile. It's the most embarrassing episode in Israel's history. It's It's a depressing moment for Israelites. But there's a flicker of hope. A flicker of hope in that among those Israelites carried away into exile, there is a descendant of David. The narrative doesn't give a lot of time and attention to that, but it's there to signal that hope remains because there's a remnant of the line of David that one day might give birth to the kind of king we so desperately need. That kind of hopeful optimism is born out of the very passage that we've just read, the immediate fulfillment in Solomon. But the hope and optimism that it breeds which is expounded upon and grows in the remainder of the Old Testament until coming completely to bear, finding its yes and amen in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I might miss the message of Christmas. The world around us might miss the message of Christmas. But for God-fearers in the first century, the significance and the meaning of the birth of a Christ child in the city of Bethlehem of Judea would have never been missed. Wise men from afar, and shepherds watching over their flocks by night understood full well the significance of what was unfolding before their very eyes and attention. What I'd like to do in the treatment of this passage is sort of to back in. And I'd like for us to look together at the teaching ministry of Jesus and observe three promises that Jesus makes which are born, at least in their beginnings, from the very verses we've just read together. Here's the first. The promise of 2 Samuel 7 is that the Messiah, a son of David, the king we so desperately need, will build a temple. Now, I don't see your hair blown back or standing on end, so let me tell you how important that is. The temple signifies the presence of God in the midst of his 
people. In fact, even before the temple, it was the Ark of the Covenant that signified God's presence in the midst of his people. God's presence bore power for the people of Israel. Often they would presume upon this power. A great example of this takes place in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. Israel is on the verge of defeat at the hands of the Philistines. So they determined to treat the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm and to bring it out to battle. God says, I'll show you. And the Ark of the Covenant is carried away captive, and the people of Israel are defeated in battle. Now, they did what they did because they understood that the Ark means the presence of God. And the premise they were operating under was true. If God is for us, who can be against us? But God is not to be trifled with or toyed with, and the ark is carried away captive. Later in the days of Jeremiah the prophet, in the buildup to the exile of the people of Israel away from the promised land, Jeremiah preached against the city of Jerusalem, and he warned them that neighboring nations would invade, that there would be judgment for their sin, and they would respond to Jeremiah's warnings to Jeremiah's prophetic word of judgment, they would say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And what they were saying was, we can surely never come under the judgment of God. Surely no neighboring nation could invade because after all, we have the temple. Now they've mistreated the premise, but that doesn't negate its truthfulness. That if God is for us, if God is in our midst, if God is with us, who can be against us? Jesus would say in John 2 and 18, in response to the Jews who asked, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answers, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus made. They believed the statement Jesus made, and they believed the scripture. What scripture? 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Messiah will build the temple. Now, Jesus does something fundamentally different with the temple. Not only is he actively building the temple, you and I, by faith in Jesus Christ, are living stones being built up into a house of glory for Jesus himself. Not only is he the builder, the chief cornerstone, and the architect of the temple, he is himself the temple. We no longer make holy pilgrimages to holy places to gather ourselves in shrines in order to meet with a God who abides behind the veil. The veil has been ripped. The boundaries of access to God have been broken. We now meet with God behind the blood and within the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Messiah will build the temple. We come to understand through the teaching ministry of Jesus 
that the Messiah is the temple. Now think of this. Before we called him Jesus, before we knew him as Lord and as Savior, the Bible called him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The abiding presence of God is no longer limited to a building, a facility, or a city. He abides with us by the Spirit of Christ, indwelling our hearts and inhabiting our lives. He has even made of us a temple dwelling for the presence of His very Holy Spirit. The Messiah will build a temple. The promise for this is born in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's the second promise. The Messiah will rule eternally. Now the temptation for contemporaries to David, Nathan, even Solomon and the kings who had come immediately after David would be to interpret the promise of this chapter in a contemporary sense, to look for the immediate fulfillment of the promise. And as I mentioned earlier, the Chronicles indicate that at least in part, Solomon is the answer to this promise of a descendant ruling on the throne of Israel. But even in the initial promise, there are indicators that God has something in view that's of greater importance than the contemporary, than what is happening in the immediate aftermath of the promise and even in the immediate aftermath of the life and leadership of David. The very language of forever evokes in our mind the notion of eternity. In verse 16, God says, Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Although the prophecy of Nathan the prophet was intended to have some immediate fulfillment, forever evokes eternity. And it develops, it snowballs, and it grows over the course of the Old Testament in such a way as to powerfully reinforce the notion that Jesus is not our temporary king, but our forever eternal reigning and ruling Lord. Matthew 19, Jesus is recorded as saying, I assure you, in the age of the Messiah, as the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters, father or mother, children or fields, because of my name, will receive one hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus speaks of his rule and reign in the age of the Messiah, which, by the way, is now, and he speaks of our being joined together with him in his active rule and reign over all things, and he speaks of the upside-down nature of the kingdom over which he reigns, wherein many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. He speaks here of his kingdom authority. All authority belongs to Jesus. Later prophecies, which we'll see, Lord willing, over the next few weeks, would broaden the scope of the Messiah's reign beyond Israel to all nations, to the end that people of every tongue and tribe and nation 
will be citizens of this kingdom over which Christ reigns eternally, worshiping him with all the energy, stamina, enthusiasm, and excitement we could ever hope to muster. Jesus is actively ruling over all of the world. It's not that he will rule. It's not that he has ruled. It is that he does rule. At this very hour, Jesus is actively ruling and reigning. It is not a throw-in. It is not a haphazard statement. When Jesus says in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, he is signifying that by virtue of his death, In his resurrection, the age of the Messiah referenced in Matthew 19 has now come. Jesus is Lord and Savior over all. Jesus is King. He'll be King forever. When I came to faith in Jesus, one of the most endearing attributes of his character was his stability. My life had been here and there, up and down. Felt like we moved a lot, shifting and turning and changing within the family, within my broader family and immediate family. It just seemed like there was a lot of coming and going. But I found a friend in Jesus who was steady and stable. The same yesterday, today, and forever, in whom there is no change or variation, no shadow of turning. I found one whose faithfulness was great and whose mercies were new every morning, who would never fail me nor forsake me. This is at least a part of what it means to say that Jesus reigns forever. In the kingdom, there are no elections. There is no democratic process. There are no debates, no opinion polls. It doesn't matter what you think because those who are in, their hearts have been arrested by the power of the gospel such that they are eternally smitten with the one who bled and died and rose again that they might have this great gift of salvation. Aren't you grateful for that? There's a third promise in our passage, namely that the kingdom of the Messiah will never perish. In other words, that citizens of the kingdom Jesus establishes will never die. Verses 8 through 11, the Bible says, Now this is what you're to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of hosts says, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies before you. I'll make a name for you like that of the greatest in the land. I will establish a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not afflict them as they've done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your The promise is, in effect, a place of rest, place of liberty, place of peace, place of protection. God had promised the people of Israel to give them the promised land, and he brought them over under the leadership of Joshua that they might enter into a rest 
that would prove over time to be partial as the result of their active disobedience. Jesus is Christ, to in effect bring us over, to inhabit a place of peace and of rest, a place whose peace and rest and protection is not conditioned upon our ability to obey, but which is conditioned upon the perfect righteousness of the one who bled and died in our place. So yet again, Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. At the turning of every page in the Old Testament, we see this striving, this straining, at resolving the conflict created way back in the garden. We have this historical rehearsal of every technique, every maneuver, every method that might be employed to bring resolution to that fundamental problem. How will we as an unrighteous people be brought near a righteous God? How will God in His righteousness draw near to himself an unrighteous people without compromising his integrity? Will it be through an earthly king? Will it be through a judge? Will it be through the conquest of a land that provides for flowing milk and honey and peace from their enemies? Will it be through the implementation of law? Will it be through the work of priests and of prophets, the performance of great miracles, the straining and the striving to do all that God has called us to do. And with every technique, with every method, with every maneuver, humanity finds itself failing again and again and again and again. Until the son of David, who is the son of God, was born in Bethlehem of Judea to do for us what we simply could not do for ourselves. You might even say that over the course of the period of the kings, the people of Israel are learning that it's not just a son of David they so desperately need, but it would be revealed in the days of Isaiah the prophet that it was the son of God, ultimately, they so desperately needed. In Luke 22, Jesus says, I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one on me. Matthew 18, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. It is an interesting phenomenon to me that we understand so little about the kingdom when Jesus talks so much about it. Even the verse we've just read, My kingdom is not of this world, is so often misunderstood. Note that Jesus does not say, my kingdom is not in this world. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom does not originate from this world. It's not born out of military conquest or political influence. It is heavenly in its origin. It is divine in its nature. And he has invited us as the people of God by faith and repentance to be citizens of this everlasting kingdom under the rule of his everlasting kingship. This is great promise for us. Packaged together with this messianic promise is hope 
to life everlasting that comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ, an everlasting king with an everlasting kingdom. It does not matter what this world does to kingdom people. Nothing this world attempts to do to subvert the kingdom of Jesus will ever work. The psalmist reflects on this world shaking its fist in the face of God, seeking to undermine the work of the kingdom in this world. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? You and I are citizens of an everlasting kingdom in which we are eternally preserved by faith in Jesus Christ. This is reason to rejoice. And these hopeful expectations find their yes and amen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We, we tend to sort of isolate these component parts of Jesus' life and ministry from one another. His birth, his life, which is often neglected, his crucifixion, his resurrection, but it's all part and parcel of the same gospel message. We, we were in Israel, I was in Israel, and several of you were in Israel back in, in September. We didn't realize it then, but we were getting in and out of Israel by the skin of our teeth before so much of what has unfolded in days since began to unfold. We were driving around in the tour bus and going from site to site and seeing various things, and you would see on on the backs of road signs, sometimes even on the front of road signs, and and doorposts and light poles, these signs, and you could tell they'd been around for a while. They were faded. You could you, you couldn't read all of them. You would just get little flashes. And I I read biblical Hebrew, but modern Hebrew is a much different thing than biblical Hebrew. And so when I would see biblical term, I would seize on that and try to read through whatever was there in the Hebrew. And I, I, I was seeing the word melech, which means king, on this poster that was everywhere you looked. We, we were driving along on one stretch of road five or six miles, and I must have seen a dozen of these signs. It was an aged man with a long white beard, and the first word that I could see was melech. Eventually, I could see ha-melech, which means the king. And then I could see the full writing. It said Ha-melech wa-ha-mishaah, which means the king and the Messiah. Now, if you talk to Jews in the West, they will say to you that this idea among evangelicals that the Jews are waiting for a Messiah is just a figment of our imagination, that we're taking the Bible far too seriously and that they don't look at the Scripture in that way. But here I'm driving along an Israeli highway, and there are a dozen signs in a five-mile stretch of road with an old guy with a gray beard that says, the King and the Messiah. And I asked the tour guide, I said, what's up with the sign that says the King and the Messiah? Am I reading that correctly? He says, oh, yes. They thought, in the past tense, that he was going to be the King of the Jews and the Messiah. And I said, thought? What has happened that they're now convinced he's not? And he said, in rather cavalier fashion, oh, he's dead. That sort of wrapped that up, right? If your messianic figure is dead, you don't have much hope. Like, you know he's out. Like We've got three over here to pick from. One dies, we're down to two. It's fairly clear. If he's dead, his, his potential 
for king of the Jews, the Messiah is over. When a, when a dude is dead, he's just not going to do a whole lot in the way of Savior work. And it was just a note to me, an encouragement to me, a reminder to me of the significance of worshiping a king and a Messiah who admittedly was dead, but has been raised again. And that resurrection is history's strongest attestation to the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the substance of Jesus' earthly ministry. You know why I believe beyond faith, beyond blind faith, beyond the work of God's Spirit that has forever changed my heart and life, beyond the hand of God's providence in my life experience that I can trace in reverse indelibly. I know that God intervened in these ways along the way to set my life apart. I know that God has taken the heart of a bitter, violent, angry young man and filled me with joy and gladness and has been pleased to use me in the service of an everlasting king as a citizen of an everlasting kingdom. But beyond all of the spiritual, do you know where I find confidence in the truthfulness of the gospel? In an empty grave outside the city of Jerusalem where the body of my Lord once lay where the angelic announcement was made, Mary, why seekest thou the living among the dead? Christ is not here. He is risen. Dear friend, it is not just that the promises of 2 Samuel 7 are brought to bear in the life and ministry of Jesus. It is that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in the person and the work of Jesus. The invitation of the gospel this morning is that we would surrender ourselves to the lordship of an eternal king who is Jesus Christ and consequently become eternal citizens of an everlasting kingdom. We're on Bible study Wednesday night and we're going through evangelism strategy, disciple-making strategy and doing what we call a 20-second testimony. Many of you have been through that. And you just identify two words or basic statements that describe your life before Christ, two words to describe your life after Christ, and one sentence that describes your conversion experience. I've heard a thousand of these. But I, I think I may have heard the most powerful 20-second testimony that I've ever heard. There was an, an older gentleman from our congregation, and he came and he shared with me when we were younger. Do you know what he said? Usually people will say, before Christ I was without purpose. I was addicted, I was lost, I was bitter, I was broken. He said, before Christ, before God saved me, I believed in God and I prayed every night. And that's, that's the testimony of countless people who come to faith in Jesus away from a cultural Christianity. This Christmas season will be marked by a flood of people who attend church services just like this, who know all about Jesus in their head, but what they know between their ears has never made it as deep as their heart. There'll be those who go to church services as believers in God, who pray every night, but have never come to that critical moment in their life 
of waving the white flag and surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus over all their lives. The Gospel does not ask us if we believe in that superficial way in the existence of God. The Gospel invites us that we surrender all of our life to His Lordship and authority to find our delight in Him. Do you know Him in that way? I suspect there might even be some in this room who would bear a testimony similar to what I heard on Wednesday night. You know, there was never a time in my life when I did not believe in God. There were times in my life of special urgency when I even prayed to God. But there had to come a moment in time in my life, that crossroads milestone moment of choosing Jesus over my sin and entrusting my soul to Him not only does 2 Samuel 7 invite such a response, but the message of the Bible invites that we would willfully surrender to a good and just king. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for the chance to meet together in this way. God, I, I pray that your word would not return void but that you would call us to respond in ways that, led by the Spirit, bear eternal significance and saving force in the moments that follow. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We ask now as the people of Christ that you would grant the gift of faith to those who are near to us this morning but whose hearts are far from God. Seek and save God, we pray. Grant courage and boldness that we might respond accordingly. We ask it in Jesus' name.